0: The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we We wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. He must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would bless the reading and the hearing of your word to our hearts. You have given it to us, every word. Is inspired of you. It comes from your breath, from your spirit. Father, we thank you that you have ordained the reading and the hearing of your word as a means of grace. Now, Holy Spirit, illumine the word that we've heard. Lord, you've also called men to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ you set them apart through the laying on of hands of the presbytery to this task and you've commissioned that preaching and the public worship and yet your servants are earthen vessels they are jars of clay but you delight to hide your treasure in earthen vessels especially in the preaching of your word. And so your servant who stands before you in the frailty of his own flesh and yet called to this task recognizes his need for the unction and the anointing of the Holy Spirit in order to proclaim your gospel with clarity and with power. Lord, grant it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. It's been a long time since I was here. Time flies. You young people don't realize this. You think time drags by. But believe me, the older you get, the, the faster time flies. See, a lot of familiar faces and a lot of faces that are not familiar to me. And we thank God for that and for his blessing upon this church. Um, I think the first worship service at Shiloh, I think Dr. Piper preached that service. If I remember correctly, I see some people nodding their head. I think I preached the second or maybe the third. And in God's providence, had an opportunity to be with the congregation here, typically on a monthly basis for probably close to two years or almost two years. But it's been too long, and I'm happy to be back with you This morning. Um, I want to begin though by telling you about an experience that I had a number of years ago. You ever had an experience where you can recall something very vividly, but then the rest of the details are fuzzy? And yet you can somehow recreate to understand some of those details in light of that which is so vivid? Well, this happened to me a number of years ago. In fact, the details are so fuzzy. I don't know this 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 8 years ago. I can't recall. I can recall that I was in Orlando, Florida, uh, because it happened in the context of a conference we have every November of the regional home missionaries and the chairman of the Home Missions Committee in Orlando, uh, along with our general secretaries. It's an important conference every year. I know it was in the context of that conference. I know that I was at a restaurant. Don't know which one. I know who was sitting right next to me because it's what he said that I vividly recall. I have no idea who the two brothers were who were sitting across and on the other side of the booth. I know by recreating it, something of what we were talking about. We we're talking about church planting. It's a church planting conference. And we were talking in some way or other about a methodology of church planting that we don't use in the OPC. That's grown out of the church growth movement that began in the 1970s. Sometimes called the seeker-sensitive approach at church planting, where you target an area, this is where we're going to go, we're going to plant a church. You knock on doors in order to discern the felt needs of the people that are there in that that area, and then you structure the church to meet those felt needs so that the people will come. It's called a seeker-sensitive approach. But what I remember vividly were the words that were spoken to me by the brother who was sitting next to me in the booth. I even remember I was on the outside and he was on the inside. In the midst of that conversation, my brother said, I've always had a question about the seeker-sensitive approach. When do they tell them they have to die? Let that sink in. When do they tell them they have to die? And when he said that, it struck me. And I wish I could say to you that my first impulse was, when do I tell myself I have to die? But but I think my general reaction was, yeah, when, when do they tell them they have to die? With the assumption that we do. But when do I tell them in church planting, you have to die? When do we tell ourselves, we have to die? This is of great significance, brothers and sisters. This text comes to mind that we have before us. Let me set it a bit in its context. It's interesting when we look at John's gospel over against the synoptic gospels. John gives us a lot of information the synoptic gospels don't give us. And John doesn't give us a lot of information about that last week of Jesus' ministry, beginning with a triumphal entry and ending the night that he was betrayed. He gives us one chapter. It's what we have here. The synoptic gospels give us chapters. Now, now John gives us a lot of information about what happened the night Jesus was betrayed, beginning with 13, 14, 15, 16, the high priestly prayer in 17. He puts a lot of emphasis there, which means if he's very selective and only gives us a few details about what happened in that week, we need to stop and ask the question, well, well, why this event? And we have this event that's here before us where some Greeks wanted to see Jesus. These are probably God-fearers, probably uncircumcised Greeks, but who worshipped Yahweh. They wanted to see Jesus. They went to Philip. We don't know why they went to Philip. Maybe because Philip's a Greek name. Maybe they're from Galilee too, and Philip was. Maybe they knew him beforehand. We don't know. But they went to Philip and said, we want to see Jesus. And Philip didn't know what to do. So Philip went to Andrew and said, these Greeks want to see Jesus. What should we do? I don't think Andrew really knew what to do either. So Philip and Andrew go to Jesus. And then the Greeks are dropped from the narrative. Now, I think that there's a reason why this is here, and I want to get back to it. But the focus is on what Jesus said, the text says to them, meaning Andrew and Philip, perhaps other disciples were there. Perhaps the Greeks were there and heard it. But what's important is what Jesus said. And what he said was, first of all, a proclamation, second, an illustration, third, an application, and and then really a promise is what Jesus said. But first of all, his proclamation. Listen to what he says. The hour, this is verse 11, uh, verse 24. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Sorry, 23. The numbers are very small. That's another thing. We get older kids. Numbers get smaller. The older people know exactly what I'm talking about here. So verse 23 here, this, the hour has come For the Son of Man to be glorified. And Jesus is talking, as we know from what follows, specifically about the cross itself. He is going to the cross. And that is his glory. That's the reason why he has come but then we have the illustration. Listen to what he says in verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. That's the illustration. It's when we all understand. If you take a seed and you set it out on the table, it remains alone. It will not produce any fruit. No, it has to be buried. It has to die. It has to be buried in order for it to grow and to bear fruit. That's the illustration. But who's the seed in the text? Who's the seed that must die in order to bear much fruit? Well, the... Context, it's clear. And what Jesus has just said about the hour has come for him to be glorified. The seed is Jesus. Jesus is the seed that must die and be buried in order to bear much fruit. He's talking about the cross. That's what he's talking about. And what is the fruit of the cross? It's your redemption. It's your redemption. I'm looking out among you, and I'm wondering how many of you are actually descendants of Abraham according to the flesh, or how many of you are Gentiles like those Greeks? You see the fruit. You see the fruit of the death and the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ and of his resurrection. We're that fruit. We're that abundant fruit. And that's why it's such a joy for me to come back and see this building so full we got to plant at our church. To see the Lord's blessing and what he's doing, to see the fruit that he is producing through the cross, through his death, through his burial, through his resurrection. That is our redemption. Jesus was willing to come. To go to the cross, to die, to redeem us. That's the meaning of this. What about us? Okay, Jesus came. Jesus died on the cross, we know that. Jesus was buried, we know that. Jesus was raised from the dead, we know this as well. That's his redemptive work. Why did my brother say that day in that booth, when did they tell them they have to die? And why am I now stopping here and standing here before this congregation and saying to each one of you, you have to die too? Because we see that Jesus goes on to make application. Look at what he says and what follows. He says, whoever loses his life Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Suddenly he's not just talking about himself, he's talking about us. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And then he goes on to say in verse 26, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. Here is an application that he's making to us. He's saying we must follow him. If you're going to be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, you must follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you follow the Lord Jesus Christ, where will you end up? Where will you go if you follow Christ? You end up at a cross. You must die as he died. In fact, the Bible teaches us that we are united with Christ in his death and in his burial and his resurrection. In order to bear fruit, not only must Jesus die to bear the fruit of redemption, but in order to bear fruit in this life, we must die. We must die to self, we must die to sin. You might say, But pastor, that's not a very happy thing to say. You have to die. One thing you need to remember is Jesus didn't only die. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. We're united with him not only in his death and his burial, but we're also united with his resurrection to live in newness of life. But it's living a life unto God and not unto self. Are you ready to die? And I say this, both to those that God will lead to remain in the lampstand here. Are you ready to die? Are you ready to see your brothers and sisters, many that you've worshipped with? Some of you have worshipped with each other for 20 years or more. Even before Shiloh. Shiloh. Are you ready to go through times of discouragement? Guess what? (laughs) There will be empty seats. There will be room for visitors. But as those who depart and go to the next work go with enthusiasm in that work, those who are here, it will hurt. And it'll hurt those who go too, but not as much. Because they've got a whole lot on their mind, a real zeal for a new work. And brothers and sisters, those that the Lord leads to be a part of the new work, you need to remember your brothers and sisters who remain here. Keep those bridges built of fellowship with each other. Now, everybody has to die. Everybody has to die to self. Everybody has to die to their own desires, to their own wishes for the sake of the kingdom of God. Those who are praying about, do we go, do we stay? You, you need to do that within the context of, I need to die to myself. I need to seek before God's face. What is he leading me to do to live unto him and unto the kingdom? Let that be a part of your deliberations. And not what's in it for me. Will it be better for me? It'll be closer. It'll be better for me? I'll be with these brothers and sisters in Christ. It'll be better with me if I stay because I'm comfortable here and I've been here for a long time. It'll be better for me. It'll be better for my children. It'll be better. What's better for the kingdom? And that will be better for you. This is what you have to understand. The death itself is not the end. There is resurrection. And there is blessing. But blessing and fruit that follows being willing to die to yourself, die to your sin, and live to Christ. What happens in these situations too... I've seen it all, I think, in the last 21 years as regional missionary. And every mission work is different. I mean, some are vastly different than others. People sacrifice to be parts of mission works. You don't have a comfortable building here where... The temperature is already regulated when you walk into the building and the seats are already set up when you're here. Oh, people have to brew the coffee and people have to set out the bulletins and there are things that are to be done. But but you get it into a church plant and you're a rented facility and you only have it one day a week on Sundays. People have to go and they have to set up chairs. They have to go in early. They have to get their children up early to get there, to set up. Some have to stay and tear down. There are hymn books, not safely tucked under the seats here, but they're put in boxes usually and taken back to somebody's home that have to be. Load it into somebody's trunk and then you bring it you bring it to, to the church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And if you're going to be providentially hindered, you've got to get those hymn books to somebody else to take them. I mean, there's all kinds of ways in which people sacrifice in the beginning stages of church planting. But the question we need to ask is, are they dying? One way we see whether they are or whether they aren 't is when a difference of opinion arises within the work it 's so it 's so easy for us to think that our preferences are truly matters of conviction. Are you willing to yield your brothers and sisters in Christ? This is a way. To die. Are you willing for the service to start at a a time that may be inconvenient for you and your family? For the sake of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ and your brothers and sisters in Christ. You see, there are a thousand ways to die every day. And sometimes they're not even things that we consider or even think about. Are you ready to die? Both those who remain and those who go. I've seen plenty in mission works where problems begin to stir and brew over things that people take very, very seriously. And they may be fairly serious matters even. Like, like, where are we going to meet? Okay, here's a new location over here. It's going to cost more money. Well, we can't afford, you know, more money. We, 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 We can't do this. And people just dig in their heels. Are you willing to die? That's the question. Again, There is reward. This is not only about death. It's also about living in resurrection, power, living unto Christ, seeing the fruit. And this is what you'll see. When you die to yourself, you'll see fruit that you would have never anticipated before. And you're able to rejoice in what it is that God's doing. But sacrifice is not enough. Are you willing to die? And you'll recall what Jesus said in the early part of his ministry when he's calling his disciples. I think it's Luke's gospel who actually tells us specifically that Jesus said, If anyone come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. This is not even just about church planting. Whether you go or whether you stay. It's about living your life right now before Christ. Are you living it by denying yourself? Are you living it by dying daily? But those who die are raised. And that's the wonderful thing. The more we sacrifice, the more we give, the more we lay down our lives, even to our own preferences, even to things that we we hold very dear and very important, the more we do this for the sake of Christ on the other side of it, We see the reward. That's really kind of how this ends. He says, if anyone serves me, listen, the Father will honor him. You see, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now, I want to go to another passage of Scripture. But I want to set this up by telling you about a scenario That happened not that long ago in one of our mission works that will be unnamed at this moment. Mission work was growing. Need a new location. This kind of thing happens. You guys experience that now as a congregation. There's contemplation of new places. Everybody has an opinion. Everybody has an opinion. The session's trying to lead. People are struggling to follow. There's division, even animosity that arises within, within the life of the mission. Well, how in the world would the session ever consider a place like this? I mean, things like that said. And I recall something that happened. We were, we were having a discussion People were not happy. People were upset. And one of, the, one of the people that had been there from the beginning, one who had sacrificed much, one that was there every time the doors were opened, one that served the church in many ways, had a solution. She said, I think the provisional session needs to meet with the original core family." And I didn't say, no, that's the last thing we need to do. Which is what came to my mind. But I understand. If you're there in the very beginning, if you're one that's setting up chairs and tearing down chairs, if you're one that's giving sacrificially, for the sake of this mission work, getting off of the ground, if you're one that's sweating, if you're one that's praying, if you're there from the beginning, then surely your opinion matters more than those that are coming in the door later. I mean, after all, we are the ones who had the original vision. We're the ones who had the original burden. We were the ones that were willing to step out on faith when there was no place to put our foot down in order to see this church established, what we desire, the core group, that is the core within the core as the group has grown, matters more. And I understand that. It, it, can, can't you understand if somebody has put their hand to the plow early and if they have labored and if they've sweated and if they've, if they've sacrificed if they've given, then surely their opinion matters more. Their desires matter more. There needs to be a sense in which the provisional session is going to cater to those because of all that they have sacrificed. I understand the problem with It's just not biblical. <laughs> I want to turn in the Gospel of Matthew to chapter 20, where Jesus gives us a parable. And Jesus' parables are often provocative. Anybody that says, let's study the parables because they're easy. Don't understand the parables. <clears throat> he is often provocative. And he is in this one as well. Let me read the parable beginning with with verse 1 of chapter 20. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into the vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. and, and, And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went, going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand there idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. Now, no problem so far. It's not provocative. This man who owns the vineyard, he needs laborers. He goes and he hires laborers at different times of the day. He agrees to a denarius, that's the wage, and, and he, he sends them out. There, there's nothing provocative about that until it comes time to settle up. Look at verse 8. When evening came, the owner, the owner of the vineyard said to the foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning from the last up until the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. And when those who were hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. (coughs) But he replied to them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I chose with, what, what I choose with, what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Then, then here's, the, here's the line. So the last will be first the first will be last. We hear that parable and we say, doesn't seem fair to me either. <laughs> you know, equal pay for equal work, is that not just? This doesn't seem just to me either. Certainly, the master has the right to pay whatever he wants to pay. We understand, but we're talking about justice. Is it fair? Is it right? For those who labored all day long in the scorching heat, (coughs) excuse me, to get the same thing that those labored but one hour? No, it's not fair. We would never take this parable and use it in order to teach what's just and right in the workplace, would we? But then that's the point, isn't it? This isn't, What's right in the workplace within our kingdoms. What Jesus is saying is my kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world. In my kingdom, the first is last the last is first. In my kingdom, he who would be great would be servant of all. You see? We are about kingdom work. And the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, both in churches established and churches planted, this is kingdom work. And the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ is not like the kingdoms of this world, it's a kingdom that at its core is about He. He who is a seed who did not remain alone, but he who is a seed who died in order to produce much fruit. And we are to be like our master. Are you ready to die? I gave this, not as a sermon, but as a Bible study, at the latest regional home missions conference in Orlando to the regional home missionaries. We have a lot of new regional home missionaries. I mean, it's multiplied. <clears throat> and it's going to be in New Horizons. <laughs> I didn't write it, Altra Carico wrote it in interview with me of this particular. Bible study but I suggested something I said for years it's even in our how to plant an orthodox Presbyterian church booklet which is outstanding I'm going to even use it in Sunday school this morning it's even there where we call our groups core groups and I said I can understand that in the beginning you've got to have a core of committed families in order for a work to begin I said, the problem is, is when we retain that notion of core. Because what happens in people's minds, just like in this lady who made the suggestion to me, I think the session needs to listen to the original core families. You have this nucleus of people that's the core, and then everybody else that comes. Now, occasionally, someone who comes fairly early is let in the core, especially if they're on the same page but some are not considered part of the core. I say, we need to kill that language. We need to get the notion of core out of our minds. We need to begin with seed groups. Not just individuals who die, but the group itself. These to understand here's our task we are to be we are to be a seed in this place this, to die to self to ourselves in self sacrifice and to be buried so that Christ will plant a lampstand here to his glory and as soon as i said that in that bible study out court Carrico said done just like that it's done we're done with core we're planting with seed groups now the metaphor even fits with the language of planting but you understand Do you understand the weight of this for those who remain and for those who go and I want to tell you this up front because later on When you forget that you're supposed to die. When you forget. I'm going to come back and I'm going to say to you, do you remember when I said to you? Okay? Are you ready? And let's watch what Christ does in Raleigh. It is an extraordinary thing. There's probably 150 or more brothers and sisters in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church worshiping across town right now. Even as we are here with, what, 240 or so people here. When Doug Withington first came to Pilgrim, there were nine. Nine Orthodox Presbyterians in Raleigh. What's it going to be in five years? With three churches that God is blessing. No, maybe by then there'll be four. You see, this is what happens when we die, when the seed is planted. And Christ produces fruit. Ready to go? Ready to stay and continue to labor? Let's pray. Father, your word is clear, and you're not calling us to do anything but follow our Lord Jesus Christ. Follow him to the cross, but also to the grave and and in resurrection. Father, we thank you for how you have abundantly blessed Shiloh. And we pray that you're going to continue to bless this lampstand. That those who go as missionaries to plant, to die to south and to plant as a seed group in the South. That these seats will be filled with others that you would bring into the lampstand here, that you would prosper the labor. There as well. Father, we pray for our sister church across town. We thank you that you have preserved her through difficult times. We ask your continued blessing upon Pilgrim. Lord, for your name's sake and for the gospel in Raleigh, we pray.